Welcome to the Dev Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. This week's patron episode is an amazing conversation that I had with Reagan Chastain, who writes the Weight and Healthcare newsletter about her work breaking down the so-called scientific evidence in support of many different diet industry mythologies that have been laundered through peer-reviewed journals and decades of medical education. It's really great. So if you want to hear that episode, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I'm here with my co-hosts, Artie Vierkant. Hello. And Phil Rocco. Hello. And today the three of us are going to talk about Medicaid, which is basically public-private health insurance coverage for some poor people in America in some states. We'll get into that a little later. And specifically how pandemic policies ending are about to throw our health finance system back into some of its normal destructive chaos in the midst of a clearly still ongoing COVID pandemic that is actually you know, getting harder to see every day. So starting Saturday, April 1st, two days after this episode airs, states will resume a process called Medicaid redeterminations, which have been paused during the duration of the pandemic so far. For many decades before the pandemic, Medicaid beneficiaries were subject basically to a constant barrage of administrative burdens to certify and recertify and recertify again and again <laughs> that they still deserve to be on the program. But during the pandemic, those redeterminations stopped and Medicaid was even expanded and the number of people on it grew. But now that is ending, and as a result of the pause on redeterminations ending, as many as 14.7 million adults and 7.3 million people under the age of 19 will lose their health care coverage, some of them as soon as Saturday. Yeah. So <laughs> we're going to talk about there Medicaid, <laughs> which it's worth noting, you know, many Americans don't even understand or even fully know what it is. So we're going to look at why we do Medicaid like this, what Medicaid is, why abruptly kicking people off of Medicaid or hopping on and off called churn is part of how this program works and why states are so eager to cut people off the program and so eager, in fact, that redeterminations will be resuming before the end of the public health emergency yeah. in May. Yeah, it might seem self-evidently bad that kicking about 22 million people off of as many as 22 million people off of social safety net health insurance. You know, that seems self-evidently bad. But, you know, of course, doing it into an ongoing pandemic and some of the ways that, as we'll get into, it's going to be done uh, and why. It only gets worse, basically. Right. This is definitely a wait until you see what's under that rock situation. And ultimately, there's a lot to cover, but this is a great way to think about our current political economy of health, especially for folks outside of the U.S. who may be facing privatization reform proposals in their healthcare systems, calling for, for example, more public-private partnerships. Medicaid is really just like a very important test case to understand for anyone interested in health or disability justice. So we're going to talk about that today. But first, we're going to discuss a report in the Washington Post confirmed by multiple current and past administration officials that the White House plans to shut down the COVID response team after the official public health emergency declaration ends on May 11th. And I'd just like to be the first to say congratulations. It's done. Mission accomplished. <laughs> 
<laughs> we can now go uh, team. Uh, and by mission, what I mean is a really nice plaque for Ashish Jha that he can put over the mantle in the fireplace and he can sit around around Christmas time and tell the children stories of when grandpa was in the White House. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and as Dan Diamond and Tyler Page reported, um, some staffers have also already departed and they haven't filled those slots. And Ja is expected to leave the administration and go back to his job as dean of the public health school at Brown University come May. Yeah. So I honestly, I wanted to talk about this comment in the piece that I also thought was interesting and very telling. And this is from... Um, a senior administration official, I think, responding to the Washington Post, giving them a statement, presumably asking you know them to comment on the article they're about to run. And the statement was, quote, as a result of this administration's historic response to COVID-19, we as a nation are in a safer, better place than we were three years ago, the official said. COVID no longer disrupts our lives because of investments and our efforts to mitigate its worst impacts. COVID is not over. Fighting it remains an administration priority and transitioning out of the emergency phase is the natural evolution of the COVID response. Sure, guy. Natural evolution of the <laughs> yeah, COVID response. Whoa. Uh. So, you know, I think it's important to note that um, in, in many ways, this is not new information no not that's not to excuse it obviously this it's you know in a in a situation where when the state has sort of projected that the only circumstances under which they will do anything about covid or really take it you know very seriously is under the circumstances in which there is a crisis and they can kind of put up guardrails against some of the horrible parts of the regular either healthcare system or uh, health finance system in the United States, the regular, you know, murderous political economy of health that we all inhabit, you know, in, in that situation where those efforts kind of require a crisis position, obviously it's bad and premature for them to be uh, doing this, but mm -hmm. they have been, they've been telegraphing that they are going to do this for a long time. Um, there are rumors about it in the fall. Also, you know, before the fall, even there were also some reports that even at times before Omicron hit, uh, they had been considering winding down the White House COVID response team. But when Omicron hit, they like they stopped that process and they kind of like kept the team together for a while. Obviously, then we saw the whole transition to having jaw come in and everything. Um, but, you know, for example, I just want to note in terms of the timing on this, which is pretty detestable, I think. Um, here's a Politico piece from uh, January 10th, one of the earliest reports that was sort of accurate in saying that the public health emergency was going to come to an end around early spring, although this was before the May 11th date was shared. They write, quote, officials have focused on building out a sustainable response, sure, that can eventually be managed largely under the sprawling umbrellas of HHS and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. As part of that, aides are weighing whether to begin a wind down of the White House COVID team in the spring or summer months following the anticipated end of the health emergency or keep it intact through the end of the year, two people with knowledge of the matter said. Mm -hmm. So that's fun. Mm -hmm. Um but guess we're not waiting after all. We're not <laughs> waiting know, until right? the summer yeah, or the fall or the end of the year. I guess they no. want to get all their negative press hits about the end of the pandemic prematurely in uh, in at one time. Rip off the band-aid. Well, that's the thing, though, is like the jaw was sort of 
Jaw is, I think, the the sort of skeleton key for me in all of this, which is that, like, <laughs> as we said very early on, and I think that the, the evidence has vindicated us, the one and only one reason why he was brought on. It's like you don't actually need somebody here with any sort of managerial experience in the federal government because fundamentally the problem now is a PR problem. And so now we're at a point where what's the point of having, if if we're sort of admitting that things are done from a PR standpoint, what's the point of having a centrally cleared PR strategy through the White House, right? They've already moved his office uh, out out of the West Wing <laughs> and into the Eisenhower building, which in, in Washington, I feel like, you know, real estate is, real estate is everything. It says everything about where you are it, yeah. and, and, and what the important things are. And so, yeah, okay. So if, if the problem is just PR and not, in fact, uh, the fact that we haven't actually built even the most modest kind of infrastructure or anything like that, then that, I think, helps you explain why they're doing this. If it were really about, you know, if the whole White House strategy had been about, like, actually centrally trying to centrally coordinate and steer government towards a new equilibrium on that, then you wouldn't have hired Jaw, number one. And, you know, you might be, I don't know, like organizing the effort in a slightly different way. But this this is a very um, it's a very illustrative moment, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I found that uh, I also found that piece of information in the Washington Post report about Jaw's office being moved to the Eisenhower building really i mean certainly telling as you're as you're saying but also kind of funny in a way because we also know that one of the only things that he seems to still have in his purview uh apparently whatever i'll just say this is like calling people who may be kind of who are kind of like normie public health uh, or political science experts or something who are modestly critical of the biden administration and telling them like hey cut it out like we've got it under control it's all good so i'm just imagining him calling people from twitter in his office at the Eisenhower building and that being the subject of like, um, have you guys ever seen that like Robert Altman film, like his Nixon film where he's just like <laughs> yes. shambling around his office oh, in yeah. the last days of his Secret Honor. Like, yeah. Right. So that, so Secret Honor, but for Ashish John, the Eisenhower <laughs> building, if we can just will that into existence and make that happen, you know, anyway, that's it's <laughs> just rewinding the tape, just, just going back and rewinding the cassette tape. <laughs> no, Manolo, get this down. <laughs> Well, I mean, I heard from a couple of our sources who that was actually the thing that they found the most interesting that it had gotten out because this had been like a topic of discussion already within certain people in the administration that like seeing someone's office get moved out of the White House in this manner is like a very clear sign that that agenda has been fully deprioritized yeah. and that there's, this, that there's a kind of norm enforcement going on that Jaws' job in many ways was to come in and answer the question of why is there not someone with public health expertise running the COVID response, right? And he's served that purpose. And he's served the purpose of sort of running cover for that question as they proceeded with the winding down that they were already planning to do. And it's not this is not to say that this is like a sure deal, but this is this is really like they have made a decision and they are selling it now. And Jaw has been a big part of selling the idea that we have the tools, right? This is his line that he had before he was hired for this job. That line is part of why he was hired for that job, because that line, much like the language of like access to affordable health care. Right. That line of we have the tools 
does so much, right? It does all of this work of kind of stopping questions, stopping further lines of thought. When you when you're <laughs> when you're starting to sort of get chronically ill and you talk to people and they start to realize like oh, you're having problems accessing your health care. It's really expensive. They There's a kind of process you go through where you have to convince people you've tried all the things and you've done all the steps for access and you've dotted all your T's and you've you know met every demand for paperwork and all these sort of proving like, yeah, yeah, I've gone through all those hoops. And yet still, even after all those hoops, there is no real access to affordable health care access is a kind of mirage, right? It stands in there as a as a placement and a promise that never has to be delivered. Access upon. is an intentionally vague word. Right. Yeah. And tools, we have the tools, you know, investments and our efforts to mitigate the worst impacts and we have the tools and masks are like an umbrella we can put them away in the closet and pull them back out like jaws job is done, right? Like he's done that norm shifting. He has moved the tools into the public imaginary as being there if COVID becomes a problem for those other people over there. Yeah. And that's really where we're at right now. That was the task that he had to accomplish. Yeah. Meanwhile, as we've always said with we have the tools and the ongoing state of the pandemic, you know, important to ask who is we, what are the tools and how do you define have? Yes. <laughs> but um <laughs> Should we should we move on to uh, talk about Medicaid? Yeah, obviously, yeah, we're going to, you know, be continuing to talk about the sort of ongoing, as we've called it, sociological production at the end of the pandemic, as clearly most exemplified in the form of the end of the public health emergency and things like the White House team being disbanded. But as part of that, we have a really important thing to focus on today, which I'm surprised actually has been, you know, I see I see a lot about this in sort of. I don't know, like health wonk, health pervert the space. The trade press, basically. yeah. Right, yeah, the <laughs> trade press. But I don't, you know, I'm kind of continually shocked by how little discourse there is around this um, in mainstream press. So we'll, we'll um, without further ado, let's just get into it. Um, so we've talked a lot about the public health emergency ending on the show. But one of the things that we wanted to make sure to really specifically focus on today is one of the final big measures that was sort of a pandemic era expansion of the welfare state, one of the final big measures enacted against the pandemic itself that is going to be among the last things to go away. Um, and that's Medicaid expansion, not mm -hmm. to be confused with Obamacare, ACA, Medicaid expansion. I mean, in terms of the expansions to the Medicaid program that were done in the name of the pandemic and Medicaid, as B mentioned at the top, being the sort of social safety net health insurance program for the very poor that varies state by state. So what happened in the early days of the pandemic, there was a measure passed, a sort of COVID era expansion of Medicaid that put in place heightened federal funding for the Medicaid program and put in place new federal rules that barred states from disenrolling people from Medicaid for, you know, quote unquote, non-eligibility for not meeting like the means test requirements of Medicaid programs anymore um, for the duration of the public health emergency. This, as B mentioned earlier, and as we've mentioned many times, is set to end April 1st, which if you're listening to this on the day it's released is Saturday, this Saturday. And some states have already been and some been, states have, you know, yes. ending it already. Um, the estimate, as B said at the top, is that as a result of this, as many as 14.7 million adults and 7.3 million people under 19 will lose their Medicaid coverage in a process expected to last over the course of about a year. So with that right around the corner, 
we wanted to kind of talk about this, uh, not just what's happening, but also we wanted to sort of explain Medicaid, what it is, why uh, the way that it's put together is, let's just say, not ideal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and why this is kind of an absurd political catastrophe that has somehow managed to elicit pretty much just a big shrug from <laughs> most of the media. So, yeah, I mean, already just laid it out. This is a process that we know has been coming, right? There was a sort of temporary pause to the normal way that Medicaid works as a program. And then we're, we were sort of seeing and, and waiting for a long time, like, when is this shoe going to drop, right? Like, we knew that there were certain sundowns for certain programs. We knew that there right. was going to be this moment where, you know, the public health emergency was not going to be renewed. Like, right. for context, here on Death Panel, we've been talking about this since t- like early 2021 or something. Well, yeah, we knew this. Yeah. I mean, I I reviewed I reviewed a paper, I think around yeah, it was 2021 that was early 2021, which was just like projecting all we knew economists knew uh what all of the effects would be, not just on the fact that you're going to have massive disenrollment, but also that the end of the enhanced match rate that the federal government is pr- going to provide to the states is going to be a huge loss. Um, in terms of like revenue, like flowing into the states and people were warning about it. But I think this is the thing that's really in think about the bigger, like political economy picture of this is that as much as there was a sense that like this was a like other temporary programs during the pandemic it actually, you know, ending eligibility redeterminations, it genuinely improved the quality of the program. Yes. Um, And just like you had these other temporary programs that like actually did reduce poverty in the midst of the pandemic. And rather than saying, oh, that's a good thing, let's uh, actually try to push forward, you know, even whereas like the Biden administration tried to temporarily expand some of the other things that they put in place, but then they never sort of like got the political coalition to do so. No one was ever talking about fundamentally changing the rules around Medicaid to shift to like a new uh, equilibrium where you didn't have all of these eligibility redeterminations or maybe you expanded eligibility permanently a little bit or you expanded the uh, federal match rate. Um, in reality, it was just sort of assumed that this is going to be kind of in place. And and there, I don't think that there was really a concerted push and we kept looking for it uh, to some extent, but there was never really a concerted push to kind of change the 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 way that the program worked permanently aside from what was happening with uh with the temporary emergency uh pandemic support. So, I mean, I think that that's really important in thinking about the the broader kind of context of, of what's happening here. Yeah, I just want to um highlight something actually uh some part of that just talking about for instance how effective this was yeah. as you guys have been um, I want to just repeat actually some stuff that I've said on a, I think I said this on a show recently when we were talking about like what are the full substantive effects going to be of ending the public health emergency. Um, and when we talked about Medicaid for a little bit in the context of that episode, a couple of the figures that I cited, I'll just bring them up really quick again for the purposes of this conversation. So like the simple act, for instance, of pausing these uh, or not really pausing the redeterminations because certain states kind of kept the redetermination process process going but just weren't legally able to kick people off or you know well we can talk about that because it appears that some states like idaho did kick some people off during it yeah but the simple act of at least the federal government saying do not drop people for quote-unquote no longer qualifying 
made it possible for Medicaid enrollment overall to rise about 27.9% from its February 2020 level um, to a high of 90.9 million people enrolled in Medicaid programs. The uninsured rate, like the amount of people in the country without health insurance, um, shrunk to 8% of people, which is, you know, that's still a lot of people in a country of over 300 million people, but 8% is nevertheless a historic low for the uninsured rate. And so I mentioned this in uh, that, that previous episode too, but you know, for context, for 90 million people to be on this uh, social safety net health insurance program, that's you know, by contrast, all people with, for instance, like Obamacare plans, ACA plans, is like 30 million people. So it's yeah. three times the size of even like the amount of people who are on exchange plans, marketplace plans, right? right exactly. Yeah. And something like 150 million people have insurance through their job or through an employer, right? Like this is a gigantic amount of people who are on Medicaid and this this purge, basically, which I just want to note, like even the as we mentioned, trade press, like the people who are actually talking about this are calling this, uh, quote unquote, the unwinding, the unwinding, like the unwinding of mm-hmm. which is I just that's the official language, too, by the way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the language that that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the agency that runs the program is is putting out like that's that's the official term unwind i just wanted to point that out because i do feel like that is just an absolutely obnoxious way to characterize uh, like as many as 22 million people losing their health insurance and it it reflects i think the complication of undoing this change right which didn't fully fix medicaid but stopped one of the most difficult aspects of being on Medicaid for recipients. And also like regarding scale, I really appreciate the way that you laid that out, Artie. I mean, it's like there are 34 million people on traditional original Medicare. There are like 30 million people on Medicare Advantage. So we're losing like, you know, the entire Medicare Advantage market basically is going to disappear overnight, but in Medicaid recipients. And this also is like really important to understand, like oftentimes people think that, you know, Medicare and and Medicaid that they're the kind of they're known as the public insurance programs in the United States. Right. And so a lot of people think that they're fully public or um, think that it's maybe one plan. And in Medicare, as I said, like about half of them are that one single plan, that public plan, the traditional Medicare. About half of them are private plans that are public private partnerships. Medicaid is fractured from state to state, sometimes from county to county. It's incredibly complex and it is fully subdivided amongst a variety of different public-private partnerships. So you have a lot of involvement, obviously, from state administrators, but you also oftentimes have insurers who are then like sort of bidding for state Medicaid contracts to manage these plans and administer these plans. And so it's like this really kind of complex tangle of shit that has all of these controls in it that are austerity controls because Mm -hmm. we promise more care than we can deliver and are willing to pay for. So one of the reasons that people are constantly kicked off of Medicaid and why these redeterminations are such a huge important part of how Medicaid actually works is because the way that you kind of balance the Medicaid budgets is by kicking people off of Medicaid. 
Yeah. Right. Not by, you know, there there are already so many extreme restrictions on services under Medicaid. We've got the most extreme healthcare rationing on any plan in the United States. And yet this plan still provides some of the most essential healthcare coverage for some of the most vulnerable people in the United States. And yet it's so pre-restricted and and pre rationed that in order to really actually control costs, there's not much fat to cut in the coverage. Right, and you have to start bone. cutting out beneficiaries in order to lower that. Well, and, and this is actually, I think it helps to understand. So you, you got this huge, huge scale event, probably in in in, in terms of events uh, related to health insurance in the United States, what is about to happen over the next few months might be one of the most significant things to happen in the last 20 years, yeah. uh, yes. at least in terms of coverage gains or losses. And and the losses will mean people go without care, uh, that some people die um, and that some people don't get really important medical treatment. So their health worsens. And so you might think, why why? You know, okay, there was there's no coverage of this uh, really, or there's very limited coverage of it, or um, you know, there really wasn't a political coalition even embryonically to 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 stop this from happening. Why is that? And I think that that is fundamentally a feature, not a bug, of the program. You yeah. know, essentially, what you have here is a program. So, like, if you look at the history of of healthcare in the United States, like Medicaid has been a huge reason why people have gained coverage uh, over time because it Medicaid sort of provided this like backstop for politicians to sort of get away with not doing universal reform. You could essentially states would like enact these waiver programs and they would build a little bit more uh, a population in people. We're now going to cover pregnant uh, people or, you know, we're now going to cover people with certain other conditions. Um, And so it provided this like safety valve. You know, you could you could continue to like gradually expand the number of people who like got coverage, but without actually changing the fundamental logic of the system. And while putting those people's coverage, despite the fact that you're sort of like giving it to them, you're perpetually putting it at risk. So you're you're creating a situation where, you know, it's not like huge waves of crisis you know, momentarily, uh, but dribs and drabs of crisis for lots of people individually in a way that's like not consolidated. Um, And then and then what you're doing is you're by expanding coverage through these 50 state programs, um, you're also making the logic of the system so complex that actually saying something definitive about what is happening at one point (laughs) in time um, is going to be really difficult. So, you know, what we have is sort of projections of how many people are going to lose coverage, but states are going to do it in different ways, different times, different regulations. And like, as we said, even when the uh, COVID regulations were in place so that states were supposed to not be able to kick people off, you had a state, Idaho, that was uh, deliberately flouting the law for years and yeah. uh, thousands and thousands of people lost their coverage uh, in that state. And y- there's like no like very no news coverage of this. And like the even the federal government's ability to like enforce that. They're like, oh, yeah, we, we appreciate Idaho trying to come into compliance. Pretty please. <laughs> um, so so what you have is a situation where the the structure of the program itself preempts the formation of a political coalition to make the program better. And yeah. so what you have is like what to a great extent in the absence of some coordinated uh, social movement that, that's, you know, highly impactful, 
you know, in in the period of time where Democrats could have focused on this, could have prevented this from happening, they didn't. There was like no consolidated effort to make that happen. And so now what you have is a situation where, you know, 14 million adults and many million million more uh, children. I forget what the actual figure there is already. 7.3 people under the age of 19 um, are going to lose coverage. But, you know, is is this actually going to incite anything? Is you know, are you actually going to see this be sort of like a crisis point or a, a flashpoint in politics? I mean, I sort of doubt it. I, I you know, it's it's um, uh, that we've designed the program in such a way that horrible things can happen to millions of people, and the people who are ostensibly responsible for for overseeing and you know monitoring the program sort of give a collective shrug. Yeah, I, I want to. Um... I think we should probably talk a little bit more about how it's um, how it's structured and why it makes this sort of like coalition work that you're talking about so difficult. But I do want to just focus in for one second on kind of what you both began and ended that with, which is the question of like, you would think this would be a huge deal, right? And I think I find this very interesting because, you know, with numbers like this, as you're saying, with up to, you know, 22 million people all told, including, you know, children about to or likely to lose their health insurance um, through Medicaid, lose their Medicaid, you'd think those are numbers that people would be quite concerned about generally, obviously, despite the fact that, you know, this is a constituency, um, definitionally poor people um, and disabled people who are often, you know, totally written out of the political picture and, and not really considered important in a lot of mainstream American politics, you know, that aside, you'd still think that this would be a huge deal, especially, frankly, especially with all of the like crocodile tears that Democrats have been, uh, including Biden himself, have been like repeating in recent weeks about how like, oh, Republicans want to attack Medicaid when like Democrats are the ones who sort of like initiated this great, quote unquote, great unwinding process. But so anyway, the, the thing is about this one of the lines. So, you know, I, of course I go straight to what's the defense of this, right? What, how is this Mm -hmm. fucking defensible? And one of the things that people say is, well, you know, a lot of those people who are kicked, who are going to be kicked off of Medicaid, they're not eligible anymore, or maybe they're not eligible anymore, but maybe they're, you know, uh, not poor enough for Medicaid now, but they are not wealthy enough that they are also not qualified for like ACA subsidies to get like an Obamacare plan, right? So essentially what a lot of these people say is like, okay, well, yeah, a lot of people are going to leave Medicaid, but then a bunch of them are going to maybe jump ship over to an ACA plan. Like they're going to end up on mm-hmm. the exchange. And I want to just highlight something about this uh, that because I, I see this everywhere. And I feel like this is just the kind of excuse that people give. And I just want to, I just want to kind of call bullshit on this for a second, because I think a lot of the people who are saying that are also, frankly, the very same people who should be enough of like, or the type enough of a wonk to know the next thing that I'm going to say, which is <laughs> according to an analysis from MacPack uh, that looked at Medicaid enrollment and disenrollment data across 2018, They found that when adults lost Medicaid, this is before the pandemic, obviously, uh, but when they lost Medicaid, when they were kicked off of Medicaid rolls, only 4% of them ended up moving on to an exchange plan. A full 30% of them returned to the same Medicaid program after a coverage gap. They're saying coverage gap in the report by which they mean a period of having no health insurance. 
that leaves 65% that either just stayed uninsured or where they were not able to identify exactly what they did because they didn't end up back on the same Medicaid program or another state's Medicaid program and they didn't end up on an exchange plan. So they just didn't know. But I just want to note if 15 million adults, right, lose this because this is the adult uh, number, there's a different percentage calculation for children on the plan. If 15 million adults lose their Medicaid coverage to this, 4%, again, it, and if this is if this carries over from these numbers from 2018, that 4% only end up moving to a exchange plan, right, to, a, to an Obamacare plan, 4% of 15 million is like 600,000 people. That's like yeah. a drop in the bucket of what is happening. So I just I just want to note that like, there are a lot of sort of platitudes that you'll hear about this that just kind of say like, Oh, you know, it's well, the, the, it, yeah, maybe it'll be a little chaotic and people will just shuffle around or whatever. They'll have a brief period of being uninsured, not to mention the fact that that's like a potential death sentence in this country, but whatever. And it, it's, I don't know, it's unserious to to claim this. It's right there. Like we know that this, we know how bad this is. Yeah. And because so many people on Medicaid are also people who are disabled, who are maybe on SSI or SSDI, or they're retired and they're poor people on Medicare um, who also have Medicaid, those are people on fixed incomes. And we can know looking at the populations of who is cycled on and off Medicaid and who is not, that the people who are forced to live in such poverty with fixed and capped incomes are much less likely to be cycled off the policies because it's much easier to very quickly prove to the government, no, here, I only make $675 a month from SSI, and that is my only income. And here is sort of all that documentation. And as Alice Wong wrote about in her Teen Vogue column that just came out, like that kind of documentation and making sure you have that ready to go is like a crucial and really burdensome responsibility that that yeah. every recipient has, and particularly disabled recipients who are on Medicaid and getting their home and community-based long-term care through Medicaid. The, one of the only ways people can pay for in-home nursing services yeah. when they're not super fucking rich is Medicaid, right? And so just imagine like the amount of work that you have in an average you know, fight with an insurance company, triple it. And make it quarterly. And you've got like the average experience of Medicaid. But a lot of the people who are kicked off of Medicaid, who are cycled, who are in that churn, they're people who like work in restaurants and maybe there's a big holiday weekend and they make a lot of tips and they maybe don't report that properly. They're kicked off for three months. Maybe they're back on for three months and they're off for three months. Yeah. That has so serious, serious long-term consequences, both in terms of continuity of care, in terms of being able to actually treat chronic conditions, reliably go to the doctor, I mean, and then throw it in the middle of COVID, right? And try and unwind this shit of like, you've paused the most violent dynamic of this program. How do you restart it? If the emergency is still going, right? Like right. you absolutely can't. And states are kind of in this position. And, and I'd love for us to maybe talk about why they're in this position, but they're in this position where they're kind of forced to make a choice. And the federal government is saying, rather than choose to make sure that millions of people retain this insurance of last resort, right? Like that was this the for the populations that are uninsurable because they're not profitable. We're we're gonna just unwind everything. Right. And can I say one more thing about this, this, this argument that Artie is bringing up that like it's not actually going to be that big of a deal. 
you know, the the evidence that people cite for that is that when people are disenrolled from Medicaid, a lot of them are going to become eligible right. for uh, <laughs> advanced premium tax credits for, uh, you know, uh, plans on the exchange uh, or, or marketplace coverage that uh, is, is sort of not on those exchanges, not on the ACA uh, exchanges or whatever. But that's that's simply a matter of like projecting what people will become eligible for. It doesn't actually say what they are going to do. And the evidence yeah. suggests that when you have premiums uh, of, of the level that exist in a lot of states, even if you have APTCs, that that's going to cut people out of the market. And then the other thing is like what it, this is doing is also like regenerating this other market for scam healthcare insurance, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that's the other thing that's going to happen. Like scam, totally. like essentially like the most nefarious players in the health insurance marketplace, a marketplace defined by the most nefarious players in like the selling of this sort of product um, are, are, are like licking their chops because they're realizing there's a bunch of people who are going to be so fucked that they are like are going to be receptive to all kinds of information. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's it's just. It's maddening because all of this is foreseeable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that you brought that up, Phil, because I was just thinking and unnecessary because this is so such, unnecessary. As you might be getting the picture by now. This is a very bad way to do things. Like, obviously, we need to protect Medicaid, but we need something a hell of a lot better than so Medicaid. So much better. Sorry, go ahead. And and because of my conversation with Saloni Bauman, which is fantastic, um, and we were talking about sort of like this moment in in housing policy, in HIV AIDS policy, and in, in Medicaid, and she and I were talking and I brought up our death panel history of Medicare episode. And so I was actually thinking about, you know, the creation of Medicaid and how frustrating it is to just be reminded that it was written by a bunch of fucking Etna lobbyists in the first place, right? Like the original bill, um, the idea was called Better Care. And part of what interested insurance companies in getting involved in shaping what Medicare and Medicaid became was because they saw an opportunity to colonize the gaps in between the public programs, to find ways to extract from people um, experiencing churn and experiencing, you know, these eligibility moments that are incredibly confusing and the way that they were put together was fucking careless right i mean we know wilbur mills did not really give a shit about how those three bills came together to become medicare and medicaid and and the frustrating thing is that what we have seen is after decades of of seeing how a policy that is designed so carelessly just to really make a population available for exploitation by private insurance companies can reverberate and become the way that we think is the only way that we can pay for care. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think actually since since you've just thrown back to the history, I think it's actually important to kind of just to to note just a couple of things, um, especially for, you know, I think probably the average death panel listener is probably more likely than, you know, the average person to know what Medicaid is generally. But, you know, for those who don't, I just think it's important to run through how some of these dynamics work. As we've mentioned before, you know, we've said stuff like, oh, it varies state by state, right? Or it's like, you know, every plan is managed by either an individual state or sometimes by counties within the state. You know, essentially this, it's it's hard to even say this program because this set of programs um, is essentially this federal requirement that's different in every state that basically 
the the way that it works and the way that the reason there are these like funding crunches that we sort of talked about and things like Phil has kind of offhand mentioned um, stuff like federal contribution levels to Medicaid programs um, earlier in the conversation. Um, what happens is essentially so Medicaid funding is split between states and the federal government that varies, you know, depending on what state what state you're looking at varies depending on whether they've accepted, for example, Affordable Care Act uh, Medicaid expansion, um, which which changes the the paradigm and also adds more requirements on top of it. Um, a lot of it is like very complex and not necessarily super important to get into in this overarching explainer that I'm doing. But an interesting wrinkle in this is and and to sort of like further, I think, explain one of the things that B was just alluding to is that one of the ways that states run these programs is often to sort of contract with a managed care organization, which is often like another, a health insurance company, basically. Um, so something like 72% of all people covered by Medicaid, uh, like of all people who have Medicaid plans, they get their coverage through one of these managed care organizations. Um, of that 72%, about half of that is administered by just five companies, one of which is Aetna. Mm. Um, so they've been in this game for the long haul, although they are now technically Aetna CVS. Um, <laughs> the other the other four are United Health, Centene, Molina, and uh, Elevance, which you may know by its old name, Anthem. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very interesting because... Uh, so, so all of these constituencies, essentially, I don't stretch to call them a constituency, but what, whatever, all these stakeholders, if you will, <laughs> have very different um, goals and sort of abilities in mind. So, for instance, if you look at like who finances Medicaid, uh, states and the federal government split the costs of the Medicaid program, you know, the, again, the percentage of how much a state versus how much the federal government pays for it um, varies state by state. But the important dynamic there is the federal government can deficit spend. The federal government creates and manages the money supply. They can you know, basically do whatever they want. States are much more constrained in their spending. In their spending. They can't deficit spend. They have like a much more limited pool of resources to deal with. Um, that leads to incentives like B is talking about where they are incentivized to reduce to like call the Medicaid rules as will be happening over the course of this unwinding. Conversely, other stakeholders like, for example, Aetna or United Health or uh, I was going to say Anthem, but, you know, whatever, Elevance that it's called now. Um, these other stakeholders have a different kind of agenda in mind, which is uh, I think I was from reading some industry reports these private health insurance companies that manage Medicaid programs for counties or states, they uh, have on average, I think, something like a 3% return rate, uh, something like that. So they're, they're incentivized to kind of try to keep people on uh, Medicaid because they actually like these private companies do profit from having Medicaid patients uh, under their wing. Although they actually profit more from having them like the, the the return rate is greater on Obamacare plans. So there's like actually even like it's it's kind of sick, actually, if you look at some you of the things that money. like industry reports are saying, because there's all sorts of because of how fractured and weird and like public private this system is, there's all this chatter in industry uh, press, everything from. Oh, you know, United Health is going to try and like do what they can because they're incentivized to get people f- like transitioned from Medicaid to like one of their exchange programs in the area or in the state, right? Um or you even have things like right before we sat down to record, 
I saw a, a sponsored content thing from a company called Gainwell, an advertisement for a chatbot that the company built called Gabby at Gainwell, which will essentially do AI call center answering to be like the point of contact, like the first point of contact for people trying to appeal their Medicaid redetermination. Uh, You know know what I mean? I think we should actually talk about really beyond what the redeterminations are, really what is the context that they're happening in? What is the, the, you know, the states are saying we have to do this for budgetary reasons, but like what are the actual dynamics that underlie that as their defense for why even some states have moved ahead ahead of this this deadline. So, I mean, you know, if you think about it, Medicaid is not one program, but it's 50, right? Yeah. Uh, Overseen by the federal government, but run and co-financed by the states. So obviously you're going to have some states getting out there in front. Like Idaho was was really wanted to be the leader in um, fucking people over during the pandemic, I guess. Congratulations, uh, <laughs> Idaho, just like flagrantly flouting federal policies on on eligibility redeterminations. And perhaps that can be expected, you know, of Governor Brad Little. Um, Arkansas is obvious. Like there's an ideological story to be told. Right. Arkansas was the one of the first states to try to impose uh, Medicaid work requirements at which, you know, again, gutted the program. Um, and now it's one of the first states to move really aggressively on eligibility redeterminations. And again, you know, part of this is an ideological story about, you know, um, needing to make the point that you are entitled to nothing. Uh, you get nothing. Uh, you know, you you deserve nothing. You are worthless scum. Um, Especially in the context of Arkansas also making moves to, like, remove child labor protections. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like the it's the bridge to the Victorian uh, political economy once again. <laughs> um, but I, but there's also a bigger story that is not just ideological. Right. Yes. And yeah. it has to do with the way that Medicaid is financed. So states have some responsibility to pay. Uh, for Medicaid. And that responsibility is determined by a uh, metric called uh, FMAP. And FMAP is basically a percentage that takes into account your state's per capita income, uh, household income uh, related to all of the other states. So if you have like a a particularly high number of of low income people, you're going to get a slightly higher FMAP percentage, which means that the federal government is going to kick in a little bit more. Um, But what that means is that, you know, kind of regardless of where you are, the state is going to have to kick in a certain percentage. um, And some states have to kick in a lot more because they have a lot more people uh, they have they have a high, higher income uh, population. So what this means is that when you have um, continuous eligibility requirement, you're not able to kick people off so frequently and, and you know, force them to think about, like, you know, where they're going to get health care, how they're going to pay for it and so on. You have to pay a little bit more. And what the federal government did at the beginning of COVID was it increased the, the FMAP rate uh, by, I think, about 3%. So basically it gave states kind of across the board a little bit more money uh, in exchange for covering a larger population. And when Congress at the, in its end of the year budget uh, bill last year, got rid of this uh, continuous coverage and, and you know, kind of set the course for for states uh, disenrolling people, it simultaneously and, you know, 
kind of quite logically, if you're going to do that, you're going to cut back the FMAP rate. And so what that means is like, even if you're a state that like wanted to keep continuous coverage, one, you're now the federal government is saying, no, you actually can't do that. But two, (laughs) just to make sure, you know, that we're clear here, we're also you know, reducing the amount of uh, funding that we're giving you. So so you have like not only a regulatory, but like a fiscal incentive uh, to kick people off. So it's it's basically like the, the message that Congress was sending out with that legislation was nothing changed here. We had a temporary thing and now nothing has changed. We are going back to exactly what we were doing, yeah. uh, you know, at the beginning of uh, the pandemic. And, you know, like one question that, is coming up in, in discussions that I've been reading uh, at the Medicaid Advisory Commission on this is like, well, what is it actually looking like? What are states doing? And, you know, there is actually variation. Like some states are going to be more generous probably in the way that they use information to recertify somebody's eligibility, what's called ex parte uh, certification. So, you know, they're not going to they're going to use whatever available information they have on you to recertify that you are under the income and asset caps and, and all of that. Um, and so you won't get disenrolled just for like not responding to a letter. But in a lot of states, what's going to happen is they're going to send out some letters. And there's been a huge discussion about like, you know, what should the letter look like and like what color should the envelope be? And like, how do we make sure that people know that this is really important? Because but one of the things that happens is when you get a really bad looking piece of mail from the government mm-hmm. like a natural inclination a lot of people have is to not want to look at it and a lot of people don't yep, uh, yep. for completely understandable reasons and a test <laughs> and right and and so you know regardless of like what color you make the envelope and how you make sure it's like people know um this is something important a lot of people are just simply not going to and and by the way address data is also really screwy uh especially yeah, that if i would like, say is even move, a bigger issue yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i mean address data is sort of famously bad, um, even if you use, as states are required to use, the USPS change of address database, um, address data is still uh, really bad. And the other thing is that uh, healthcare providers, who are the people who are probably far more likely to have a current address for you than the state Medicaid agency, because, you know, you're going to your pharmacy counter and saying, and they're saying, by the way, is this your current address still? And you're telling them, if, if, if no, you're giving them an updated address. They're not actually allowed to communicate um, with people who are on Medicaid directly about like, oh, yeah, here, here's what you do, right, uh, to to recertify. So there's some ways of getting around this. But but ultimately, like there's this hard fiscal backstop that states, even if they like want to keep things going, um, they have this, you know, both regulatory and fiscal incentive you know, to do eligibility redetermination. And then some states are going to be even more sort of vicious about the way that they do it. And they're going to ensure that a lot of people lose coverage simply because they didn't like return a piece of mail uh, or, or, you know, have an updated address on file. We're going to spend years like chasing down people probably that are eligible to get them back on Medicaid essentially after this happens. I mean, I think we're we've seen so much investment in like the redetermination process. We've seen Almost no comments from anyone in state offices and the federal government in any of these sort of independent advisory committees about what the plan is and what everyone has been doing to try and make sure that we're going to navigate people onto these other plans, right? Like simply having this eligibility open up is 
not enough. And we have really not put any thought into managing that part of it because that's the part that really doesn't matter, right? Like people's healthcare doesn't matter. What matters to the people making these decisions is making that balance sheet work for states based on, you know, the ways that we really kind of run how money works between yeah, states the and the federal government. arrangement that they are not interested in changing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's not just a feature of, of Medicaid, right? Now, obviously, the, the design yeah, yeah. of Medicaid is, you know, to require states to provide some, some cost sharing, right? You could have a program where f- the federal government picks up the entire tab and the states just run it. I mean, that's entirely possible. It's been proposed in the past. I mean, it, just in, in financing terms, it doesn't solve all of the problems, but in financing terms, it does relieve some of these um, pressures because the other problem is that when you entrust something like this to the states, you are entrusting it to governments that have two important properties that make them different from the federal government. One, they do not uh, create their own money. Uh, they don't have access to the mon- monetary supply, so they can't spend money in, in deficit conditions. The other thing is they actually have budgetary. Most states have either a, a statute or a constitutional provision that forces them to balance their budget in one way, shape or form, uh, which, by the way, conservatives tried to uh, create a constitutional amendment to do this uh, at the federal level in oh the 90s. God. And there are some indications that that's actually what they would like to do again. Um but uh, what this what this means is that um, a program like Medicaid, which has the possibility of growing because uh, surprise and even a uh, program that's sort of income, uh, be, you know, uh, means tested or based on your income. Uh, still, a lot of people are going to qualify for it, but a lot fewer. Surprise, people, a lot of people are poor. <laughs> yeah. And but a lot. I mean, just like a lot of other programs. Um, that are means tested, it is under, you know, it is often undersubscribed. Not everybody who is eligible for it actually gets it. And one reason why is that you have all of these administrative rules in place, which again, you know, part of the reason those rules are in place is that as long as you have a program that is, you know, means tested or, or, you know, that you get only based on your eligibility or, or medical conditions, if, if that is the condition in which you become eligible for the program, the states are, are going to have to do that in some way. Like we can get into the minutia of like whether or not they're doing it well or poorly uh, or like they're more or less generous. But once you've done that, once you've designed the program in that way, you've created the ceiling um, for, for like, you know, the way that how, how generous it could be. Yeah. And then second, when you entrust it to the states, you are guaranteeing in a way that you're going to have a fiscal incentive to kick people off at a regular clip. I think it's also worth just, you know, again, returning to that point um, that we we made pretty early on. I mean, these small changes, both, again, the increased federal contribution and the uh, continuous coverage, uh, continuous enrollment requirement, as in, you know, not being able to, uh, not being supposed to, as we said, um, kick people off Medicaid rolls made the program substantially better. I think almost in ways that probably for how resoundingly it passed when this provision went through almost like it would be something that now a bunch of these politicians who push it through would like regret or something. And I think to see how much better that made things, you know, again, I guess almost I have to just return to what almost my my um, final takeaway for this would be, which is that 
like I'll, I'll be straight up. I think Medicaid sucks. I nevertheless think Medicaid must be defended. It should probably be expanded if that's the political horizon that like, for example, today's Democratic Party is interested in engaging with. My interest, you know, obviously B and I wrote the book Health Communism, like you, everyone probably who's listening to this knows our politics here. We want all care for all people. It's very important. Um, One way to start that process is to do something like single payer. That's absolutely what we should do. I'm not so I'm not here to just simply say, oh, Medicaid sucks and get piled on by a bunch of people who, you know, who will probably agree with me and say, yeah, Medicaid sucks. I nevertheless depend on it for my life because they're right. I mean, and it's also an enormously important so program. Better. They deserve so much better than the things that they're forced to do in order absolutely. to maintain their access to Medicaid, which are like carceral and based on the surveillance desires in the state more than anything else. Right. So, but, and it's an enormously important program, uh, or as, as Phil said, programs. 50 programs, 50 or plus programs. Um, it's also, uh, as I think it's pretty clear from how we've been talking about it and how convoluted some of even the explanations that we've tried to give uh, just to, you know, distill things in an accessible way quite quickly with the catastrophe that's going to happen from 22 million people possibly losing their Medicaid coverage. You know, it's also just a very bad way of doing things. It doesn't like none of the much like the regular private health insurance system, much like the employer based health insurance system, everything you want to say, none of this makes sense none of this is a good way to do this right yeah you can think Um, about the most basic uh like very i think low-hanging fruit health outcome like adherence to medication that you've been prescribed and then you say okay let's design a healthcare system where where by design we're going to make sure that people aren't able to have stable financing for that thing that they've been prescribed um, adherence will go down. Like you are designing a thing that we know worsens people's health. Like adherence to a prescribed therapeutic, uh, or you know, uh, pharmaceutical. Um, we're going to make sure that that goes away. Uh, just by the logic of the, like the logic of the system, we're going to ensure that that goes away. Um, as a matter of routine, and then even if this is my point, even if um that person is able to get on. Uh, another form of insurance, we've guaranteed you that for a month you're going to have problems with adherence. That's horrible in terms of clinical outcomes. It's just the worst that you could possibly imagine. And so, yeah, this, I, I, but I think the thing, the fundamental fact of the program is because it does patch holes in our system that is riddled with them, it actually creates a kind of permission structure for elected officials. I think it, it papers over so many of the contradictions that, you know, crises do occur. They occur with regularity, but they occur in such a way that you don't have system-wide shocks, that, that, that it becomes sort of self-perpetuating, if that makes if that makes some sort of sense. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think this is so important because, you know, in the context of what we're also seeing more broadly, right, is that the program at a federal level is under attack from Republican lawmakers. And there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that like in the conversations about the debt ceiling, about budgetary expenses, about budget neutrality and and needing to balance the budget at the federal level, like there's been all this discussion of like, oh, well, you know, we can't touch Medicare 
can't touch Social Security. And there's no mention ever of, well, what about Medicaid? Are we going to protect Medicaid? And when you ask Republicans, they're like, well, we could start thinking about per capita caps, where we cap the amount of maximum spending that each state can make per person. And that'll slow Medicaid spending growth. Or we could do uh, work requirements. And so you have this kind of like drumbeat that's coming up again, which is going to require the mobilization of the constituencies who fight to protect things like Medicaid at the federal level, which is largely disability groups and groups for people who are aging because there is not another option for long-term care. And that's super important. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it's, it's frustrating. I think some people don't totally understand like the disability community's resistance to things like the Medicare for All proposal from 2016 and why that that community was not immediately a fan. Well, like the 2016 Medicare for All proposal had nothing for long-term care. Right. But would have eliminated Medicaid. So like when you present a policy like that that so clearly takes a population and says like we've not even taken a second to think about what your needs are. You're going to have this like extreme reaction, right? This is why having long-term care as part of Medicare for All is like should be non-negotiable, as non-negotiable as eliminating other private insurance companies, right? So we don't create more gaps for people to sort of fill for these companies to fill in. But like this is this is what I think is really important to understand is that like these are the things that that are really crucial and really different about the way that we talk about things on this show. I think that there's some confusion from people. Sometimes you think that I'm coming from a kind of mainstream disability perspective in my support and advocacy for Medicare for all. But I was like a pariah for years and <laughs> like blocked by so many people, unwelcome, like in endless fights, shunned for supporting Medicare for all and for saying, no, this policy is worth it. And we need to get invested on this because we need to tell people why long term care has to be in it. Yeah, this is super important, right? Like this is a massively important disability issue. And that was not welcome because long term care is only available through Medicaid for so many people. So like part of what's also at play here is the way that we concentrate risk on the populations that we abandon and put our best advocates for, you know, thinking through these policies in such a position that all of their time is spent defending the bare minimum that we're willing to give them. And that's why I think, uh, and maybe this is, you know, getting towards a good place to leave it, but, Mm -hmm. and that's why I think, it's so important. The like the the thing that I was kind of uh, trying to circle back to in my takeaway, like on one hand, so yeah, like it's very important to understand this is a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. It is certainly not. This is one of those things that we're talking about that is certainly not being talked en- about enough for the absolute disaster, self-made disaster, self-owned disaster that it is about to be. Um, that it is already currently being that probably by the time you listen to this also it may be after April 1st and it's the gears are rolling obviously the gears are rolling now already but whatever and while it's very important to point to this disaster and say why what the fuck we should not be doing this this could have been just the new normal for Medicaid or the beginning of something much bigger or much better mm-hmm. for for Medicaid, but you know, I think most people just kind of will say we have to defend Medicaid, right? We have to like uh, uh, push back against what is essentially a massive cut to Medicaid. Like, 
I think it can be easy to stop there. That work is necessary, obviously, but it can yeah. be too easy to stop there and not join that with, well, just like everything else with COVID, frankly, um, this is a very important signal for the importance of a movement to totally sever health from capital, right? right. This is why it is so important to keep that big picture in mind and to sort of practice desiring it. So it's not just like uh, limited, for instance, to the things that you see, as we've been alluding to the way that people talk about this, like, oh, it's going to happen. But, you know, how big of a deal could it be? Right. How, like, how important is it for these people, for this group of people to right, keep yes. their mm-hmm. insurance? Right. That's the tone, not indignance and also a open and obvious desire for something that could actually work because so often it just becomes like I think frankly one of the reasons that this happens is people just you know much like with the Ashish Jaw thing where you know I'm saying like Ashish Jaw is talking to people and saying like hey you know it had to go back to quote unquote back to normal eventually it's just happening now instead of later so we're trying to manage it in a good way lay off buddy right (laughs) like similar to that I think you know the Biden administration or whoever says uh, we're going back to status quo with Medicaid. Uh, it was bound to happen eventually. We're just doing it now. We're trying to provide good guidance. We're trying to make mm. it a sustainable mm-hmm. work environment we'll for the people doing the redetermination any further work. cuts we're, beyond at right. the federal level. Uh, like, and I and I think in many of those instances, the people on the receiving end of those lines from the administration or whatever say like either, well, you know, uh, the healthcare system has worked pretty good for me, or or to be more generous, they say like, oh, well, I know there are problems with the healthcare system, but you know, what are you going to do? This is like, uh, po- like politically unfeasible. What was the thing that, um, uh, Caitlin Jettelina said in her newsletter in February, like something that like this country does not have the moral stamina or whatever to address <laughs> yet, you know, like they, they acknowledge, oh, there's a, there's a, there was like a quote unquote equity. There's an equity issue. Right. But you know, we can't, we can't address that. Well, no. We fucking we fucking know what to do. It's not complicated. It's it's like the stuff that, as evidenced by this conversation, the stuff that we are doing is far more complicated, more of a like trick or gimmick than you know what we're demanding, which is essentially all care for all people. Right? Yes, it is. It is. It's time consuming. It's wasteful as a process administratively in terms of human resources involved. It's you know like. We can use all that fucking language. And, you you know, you, you have a budgetary issue where the states are spending too much money and they can't afford to insure all of the people on Medicaid. I've got a great solution for you. Pass Medicare for all with Federal long-term care. <laughs> and if you're generous enough with long-term care, maybe you can end a five-decade-long problem that is a massive wait list for home and community-based services that the Supreme Court ruled in 1999 needed to be fixed and no one has done <laughs> shit about. And and I think that this this is the the sort of the tension that that um I think that there is a way of resolving, which is that everything about Medicaid. Um, and what's going to happen over the next few months is, is, is very emblematic of that, right? States are going to, by the way, they're going to flout whatever rules the federal government set down. Um, right. Like that's almost assured. Um, they're going to not provide the right information to people. They're not going to um, give people fair hearings. Like, take And the rules pick. are not enough, even yeah, when they're followed. Right. Yeah. And, but this is, this is my point, is that the way that 
the mode of political redress for that as it currently stands is very, you know, either like highly individualized, like, well, I'm contesting my, you know, I was able to get some counsel and, you know, contesting the the denial of fair hearing or, you know, maybe at, at, at best is very narrowly policy directed. Uh, Dear federal government, the states weren't doing what you told them to do. Um, Let's, you know, let's get, let's get some enforcement action here uh, going on. But, and, and all of those things will need to happen. There's going to be lots of opportunities because lots of people are going to be harmed by this, right? The challenge is to try to find a way of, organizing around that harm that doesn't reinforce that both like actually does redress the harm it, you know in the moment like ultimately people just do mm-hmm. need uh, whatever care uh, or whatever coverage is is available to them right but at the same time in that uh political formation that you know actually saying yeah uh the rules haven't been followed here but by the way the fact that these rules exist in the way that they do is itself part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, it's yep. not as if yep. uh, states didn't follow them exclusively because they're, <laughs> you know, engaged in ideological war on the poor, which some are, or evil, which, you know, one can say are. that some are. <laughs> um, but in many cases, it is the banality of, I mean, it's, I hate to use the overused term banality of evil, but it's like, there are just some features of the system that are going to cause states to do things that harm people. And that is an opportunity uh, in talking about that and organizing around it to say, actually, what we need is a system that doesn't allow even the possibility of this to happen uh, in quite the same way. And we could do it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That is the perfect place to leave it for today. Thanks, Phil. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. Patrons, we will catch you Monday in the patron feed. Everyone else, we will see you in the main feed later next week. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Stay alive another week.